Good morning, Harvest family and friends and all those who might be joining us online today. So glad that you are here and that we're getting to worship the Lord together this morning. I know we can't do it in the same room still. Hopefully that day is coming soon, um, but the Lord knows that we're all doing it together in spirit and our hearts are going to be lifting uh, our worship to him together. And so he honors that and I know that he loves that. And so I'm glad that you're doing it with us. We want to continue today to uh, worship the Lord through the study of his word. So grab your Bibles with me. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be starting in verse 16 this morning. We're continuing on in this little section of Acts that we've called Jesus is Bigger. And just think about how Jesus is bigger than everything in this life, and specifically today, how Jesus is bigger than my idols. Now, I know that word idols is not a word we use a lot in our culture, and we use it maybe differently than they did in the Bible um, and in, in the time that this was written. But I think the concepts, the ideas are the same and are very applicable to us. So just stay with me for a little bit, and I think you'll see that as well. So I, I learned something new this week uh, about the human body and about how it keeps us healthy, and that's that there's a special place in the cells of our body where oxygen is supposed to sit. And that space in those cells, is that slot is, is created just uh, perfect, chemically speaking, for oxygen, oxygen to sit in it. It fits oxygen just right. The problem is carbon monoxide, we've all heard that nasty term before, right? Carbon monoxide is shaped almost identically to oxygen so that it also fits perfectly into that slot of our cells where oxygen should go. So when we start to breathe carbon monoxide in, it, in mass quantities, it goes and it starts to replace the oxygen and slowly starts to suffocate our bodies. The problem is we don't actually realize that it's happening. Because as far as we know, we're fine, right? We're still breathing, air is still going in and out, our lungs are still expanding and contracting. It feels normal. It feels like everything's, all systems are go. But it's not. Actually, in those moments, we're being asphyxiated. We are suffocating, even though we don't know it, because we are replacing something that's supposed to be life-giving with something that's actually life threatening. We're replacing what we should have, what we need, with something different, a substitute. That is a perfect picture of what idolatry is. John Stott, in his commentary, defines idolatry like this. He says, an idol is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. So when you think about it like that, you see, idols aren't just little statues of little fat men or golden cows or whatever is in your mind when you think about idols. Um, idols are anything that we desire more than God. That puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? Stott actually gives a long list of possible idols in our lives. He says idols can be fame, wealth, power, sex, food, alcohol, or drugs. Idols can even be parents or spouses or children. They can be friends or work or recreation or sports or television or possessions. Idols can even be church or religion or Christian service. Literally anything that we put above God. That's what all idols have in common. They steal my worship from God. So when we think about idols that way, I think we can be clear that all of us at various times in our life struggle with idols, giving our worship to something other 
than God. And what you're going to see in this text today is that idols enslave me, but Jesus saves me. Complete opposites. Idols enslave me, but Jesus saves me, and that's where we want to be. Amen? So let's look at this verse together. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Starts like this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, No, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So the first thing we see in this passage about idols is this. Idols can never satisfy my heart. Number one, idols can never satisfy my heart. Paul here, he makes it finally in his journey to the city of Athens. This is a famous Greek city. It was a a center of Greek life for decades and maybe even centuries. It was an intellectual center. This is where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle all wrote their great works. This was a a religious center as well. There was one uh, contemporary author that said that there were more gods in Athens than there were men. There were temples and altars and idols all over the place. And Paul gets there and he sees this, and it says his spirit was provoked. Meaning he was provoked to anger, to grief, to indignation, because the city was full of idols. The Greek literally means that it was like covered like a forest canopy. It was covered in idols. There were idols everywhere, idols all over the yard. (laughs) And Paul gets very upset because he sees all of this false worship that's happening. Because they're giving God's glory, they're giving God's honor to other things. See, he's jealous for God's glory. So, he's moved to action. Paul goes out and starts preaching the gospel to everyone. First he goes and he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews, right? These are, again, these are the monotheists. They already believed in God. They already believed in the scriptures. And so he starts reasoning with them about Jesus. That's what they needed now was Jesus as part of their worship. He also went to the marketplace and started talking with all the Greeks. And, and these guys would have been polytheists, believing in many gods and worshiping many different altars and gods and temples, And he starts telling them, no, 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 you need Jesus and the resurrection. And he even ran into some Epicurean and some Stoics. These were the the two main philosopher groups of the day. The Epicureans believed that there was no God. And or if there was a God, that he was absent, that he wasn't around, he wasn't part of humanity's life in any way. So they pretty much ignored him. The Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheistic, meaning they believed that God was a spirit that infused everything in the world. Like it was kind of a soul that, that went through all living things and it held us all together. And so very different views of God. And he starts telling them about Jesus and the resurrection. You see, Paul was on fire for the gospel. He was taking the gospel to everyone every day. Not just on the Sabbath. It says he was doing it every day. He was on mission sharing the gospel, because his spirit was provoked for the glory of God. Christian, 
When was the last time your spirit was provoked for the glory of God? When was the last time that you got fired up because God's glory was going to something or someone else? Do you know why so many churches are declining and dying today? It's because believers are not provoked for the glory of God. The only thing that will keep your fire hot to share the gospel is if your heart is moved and provoked that God is glorified in everything. It is a worship issue. You can't be fired up to tell people about Jesus until your heart is so engulfed in the worship of Christ that anything else, stealing that worship, provokes you to action. If you're a follower of Christ who never talks about Christ, you need to check your heart. Because it sounds like to me that you've lost your fire for his glory. And if you don't have that, you can't be effective in the kingdom. But Paul, he was fired up, man. He was provoked for the glory of God. And so much so that everybody thinks he's crazy. They're like, what is this babbler saying? And babbler there is actually an Athenian slang term. It originally meant like a bird that would go to like the gutter or the trash and scavenge scraps of food. And, and, but they, it had become known as a term they would use to describe men who would grab scraps of learning and scraps of knowledge from different philosophers and different, different religions and try to put it all together. And they never made any sense. They, it always was just a jumbled mess. And so they said, what, what is this babbler talking about? But other people listened more closely, and they caught on that, no, no, he's preaching foreign divinities. He's telling us about some gods that we've never heard of before. So they wanted to know more, and they invited him to the Areopagus, which was basically like the city council, like the court, that would get together and debate and exchange ideas and and come up with decisions as to how they were going to function in the city. They said, come to the Areopagus and tell us more about this new teaching. It sounds strange to us. We want to know more. We're curious And then Luke throws in this really helpful, interesting commentary statement. He says, Athenians would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. In other words, they were always looking for the next big new thing, right? What's the the new idea? What's the new philosophy that we can talk about and debate and get behind? And They always needed something new to latch on to. They need to get that new high, that new emotional roller coaster, right? Because once they got the new one, it never lasted. And then they were always looking for the next new thing and the next new thing and the next new thing so they could get that high, so they could ride that wave. But because it never lasted, they were never satisfied. They always needed something new. And here's what happens to them. Here's what happens to us. The pursuit of something new actually enslaves me to discontentment. This constant race and worship of something new just leaves me always discontented when the new thing isn't new anymore. And it never satisfies my heart. We do this too. We're just like them today. Always wanting and needing the next new thing. I was, I was reading an article this week talking about um, the pandemic. And it says that during this current pandemic, the average American has been streaming eight hours of content 
per day. The average American watching eight hours of TV a day. Like some of y'all need to get off the couch, yo. Like that's crazy. And most of that watching, they said, is actually what they call binge watching. You guys have heard this term before, right? So they define binge watching as watching at least three episodes of a series in one sitting. And they say that binge watching has increased 25% during the pandemic with 50% of the people saying that they have finished an entire TV series in 48 hours or less. An entire series, like 10, 12, 15 hours of TV in a two-day period. That's a lot. And I'll just be honest with you, at our house, we've done a little bit of binge watching too at times, right? Like, you you know how it is, you start watching that new show and it's really, really good. And so you watch one episode and then you're like, oh my, I got to see what happens next. So you watch the next episode and the next episode and it just keeps, and pretty soon hours have gone by. Why do we do that? Because we always want something new. It's not enough to get one new episode. Oh, there's another one? Let me watch that one. Let me watch the next one. Let me watch the next one. And we're always looking for something new. They've got that hook in us. Our culture has learned really well how to hook us with the new. So we just keep coming back for more. Whether it be the previews at the end of your TV show or movie or for the next one and or whether it's that, that new phone that just came out with the, the new body or the new colors. Or, and it's got all the same insides. And it's pretty much the exact same phone. It barely changes at all in terms of performance. But hey, it's, it looks cool and new, so i got to get that new phone. Or the, the 100th flavor of M&M's. Well, i got to try the new flavor again. Like that's, It all screams new. And so we have to have it. But here's the trick. Once we get it, the new wears off, doesn't it? You've had that experience, right? That thing you wanted so bad and you finally get it and then the new wears off and we just feel empty and we feel blah and we feel depressed again because I don't have anything new anymore. Because every time new comes and goes, it just breeds greater discontentment in my heart. It never satisfies. I'm never satisfied with the new, just discontented by the old. I'm never satisfied with the new, just discontented when the new becomes old. Have you felt that? Do do you have that feeling in your life a lot? Are you always fighting discontentment? Are you always fighting against depression when the new becomes old? That's because you're worshiping things that will never last and never satisfy. But here's the good news. Jesus does. Jesus never grows old. He never disappoints. He always satisfies if we will worship him. He alone is worthy of our worship, not all these other idols. So we need to leave those things aside and come to Jesus. He will satisfy your heart. But there's a second thing about idols in this text. Let's look at verse 22. So Paul goes to the Areopagus, and standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Idols never satisfy my heart, but number two, idols can never sustain my hope. Idols cannot sustain the hope that we need for this life. Paul gets in front of them and he starts his speech and he says, hey, I perceive you're very religious, which almost sounds like a compliment, right? Like he's, he's trying to kind of draw them in. If I, if I give them a compliment, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll listen to me. He says, I, I see you're very religious. I've observed the objects of your worship. I've, I've seen your beautiful temples. I've seen your multiple altars and idols and I've seen your many gods. He says, but then I found this one altar to the unknown God. Like, they worshiped so many gods, and they were so scared if they missed one that something bad would happen, that they created an altar to an unknown God. Like, just in case we missed one, let's make sure we appease him too, and so we'll give him his altar and his worship as well. Paul's like, you know the unknown God? Yeah, you did miss one. (laughs) Let me tell you about the one you missed. Paul says, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. He's the creator of all things. He is the top God. There is no other God above him. He made all of it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. See, a lot of gods in their mindset would rule just like one area or one region. He's like, no, no, this God's the Lord of everything, heaven and earth. Not just one region, not one area, not one part of creation. He is higher than all other gods, all other things. He rules all of it. And because of that, he says, he does not live and temples made by man. A God that big can't live in your dinky little buildings, he said. His domain is the universe. That's how big he is. Nor, he says, is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. All your other gods, you have to worship them and give them sacrifices and go, you have to appease them. They need you to satisfy them so that they will give you what you want. My God's not like that. He doesn't need anything from you. He is overall, and he has everything at his disposal. In fact, he says, he doesn't need anything. He himself gives to all mankind. He gives you life and breath and everything. He doesn't need you. You need him, Paul says. And on top of that, he has made you. He's made every nation and determined their allotted periods, determined their boundaries He reigns in perfect sovereignty over every single human. And he's given you a chance that you should seek him and find him. For he is not far off. God is real. He's not absent. He's not some ambiguous spirit. He is here. He is present. And he's calling you to come and to believe. Don't fear him. Put your hope in him, Paul says. And he says, even some of your own poets have gotten this, right? They've told you, we're in him. We are his offspring. Like this is, he isn't some absent God. He is your all-powerful father. He's not your needy servant. He is God, and you can come 
and hope in him. You see, this, this polytheistic religion had people constantly working to appease the gods. They always had to do some new thing, to, some new sacrifice, some new religious rite in order to appease the gods and earn their favor. And this system had enslaved them to a false security. It, it had made them believe that if I just do all the right things, then these gods will bless me. And they had their hope in gods that, and idols that could never deliver. We hear a lot about natural disasters today, but you know they've been around for a while. They're not necessarily a new thing. Um, and I, I read this story about one back in 1969. 1969, in past Christian Mississippi, a hurricane was coming, and there was a group of people that were having a hurricane party in the face of the storm named Camille. The wind was howling and blowing outside this posh apartments that they were in, and the chief police, uh, police, police chief, Jerry Peralta, pulled up, sometime after dark. And as he pulls up, a man with a drink comes out on the balcony of the apartments. And Peralta yells up at him and says, hey, you guys got to clear out of here. Get out of here as quickly as you can. Storm's getting worse. Can't stay here. But as others joined the man on the balcony, they laughed at Peralta's order to leave. And one of the men yelled out, this is my land. You can't tell me what to do. If you want me off here, you're going to have to arrest me. Well, Peralta didn't arrest anyone that night. In fact, he couldn't persuade them to leave at all. So he wrote down all their names to be able to contact their next of kin if necessary. And they all laughed at him as he did and as he left. You see, they had been warned, but they had no intention of leaving. So around 10.15 p.m., the front wall of the storm came ashore. And scientists clocked Camille's winds at over 205 miles per hour, the fastest hurricane winds on record to date. The raindrops hit with the force of bullets, and the waves came off the Gulf Coast, cresting at 22 to 28 feet high. News reports later showed that the worst damage came to this little settlement of motels and gambling houses known as Past Christian Mississippi where some 20 people were killed at a hurricane party in the apartments. Nothing was left of the building except the foundation. I'm sure that that group had weathered many storms before. They're like, oh, we've been through this before. We've always made it through. And so they were trusting this building, they were trusting their friends, they were trusting their substances to see them through this storm just like they had in the past. But this time, that didn't happen. This time, the, what they put their hope in failed them and they lost their hope along with their lives because they trusted in the wrong things. Many people today have the same problem. They're putting all their hope in things of this world to get them through the storms of life. Maybe you're hoping in your financial position or your perfect little family that you have assembled or that healthy lifestyle that you go after so hard every day. Maybe you're putting hope in those human leaders that you think have all the right answers or in those personal abilities that you think will always put you on top. Whatever it is, the problem with those things is that they hold you up only as long as you appease them. 
only as long as you continue to serve them and give them what they want. Your financial wealth can only help you as long as you keep putting money in to carry you through the days and the years. That perfect little family only holds water as long as you can keep the relational strife from coming. That healthy lifestyle is great until you can't do the exercise anymore. You can't eat that way anymore as age catches up. Those human leaders, as great as they sound on TV, only have finite answers because they're finite beings. Those personal abilities one day, there'll be somebody who has more. And when that day comes, when that moment comes where you fail to give them what they need, where you miss the mark, where you can no longer appease those idols, you will lose your security in them. They will no longer hold you up, and your hope will be dashed on the rocks of whatever the current storm is. Any security that depends on my ability is a false security. Please hear me today. Any security that depends on me, on my ability to appease or deliver, or that's a false security because we are all finite, broken beings. We don't have the power to sustain that kind of hope. But God does. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need you to be God in his place. He is God and he can sustain you through the storm if you will hope in him. Not in all these other things. He is the almighty sovereign Lord who will sustain you through every trial, every failure, every fall if you'll worship him. The things of this world can never sustain hope for eternity. Do you understand that? That only the eternal God can do that. I'm just telling you, friends, he's here right now. He is present. He is not absent. He's here and ready to give you the hope and the future that you want and need if you will worship him. But you have to do that. You have to make him a priority. You have to have that regular time in his word, that regular time in prayer, that, that meeting with him and giving him your life and your heart and your worship. And you're like, well, Mike, I'd love to do that, but I'm just so busy. I got so many things going on and the kids and the work and sports and the, and the, listen, if you're too busy to give God time and attention in your life, the problem is not busyness. The problem is idolatry. Because you, by your actions, are saying these other things are more important and more valuable of my time and my worship than God is. And that's not leading you where you want to go. That will not sustain your hope when eternity comes. Only God can do that. Put your faith in him. One more thing we see in this passage about idols that is most important. Look at verse 29. It says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. He's not an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, 
Some of them mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Idols can never satisfy my heart. Idols can never sustain my hope. And most importantly, number three, idols can never save my soul. Paul says, listen, a divine being is not like gold or silver or stone. It's not an image formed by man. God is not something that you can create. Do you understand this? He's not a created thing or being. A God created by man is no God at all. That's Paul's point. If, if if, if, If man is the source, then that God, that idol has no power, no strength beyond that of its creator. God can't be bigger than us if we're the ones who create him. He has no power to punish. He has no power to save. That kind of God c- cannot help you w- with in any way beyond your own strength. Paul says that's not a real God. But you see, humans like gods that we can domesticate. We like gods that we can control and manage, gods that still put us in the driver's seat. Stott says it like this. He says, all idolatry tries to minimize the gulf between the creator and his creatures in order to bring him under our control. More than that, it actually reserves the respective positions of, reverses the respective positions of God and us so that instead of our humbly acknowledging that God has created and rules us, we presume and imagine that we can create and rule God. We want a God of our own making because a God like that is safe. It reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia. When the kids first get to Narnia and they're meeting several of the Narnians and it's time for them to go and meet Aslan, the, 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 the Christ figure in the story, the, the king of Narnia, and he's a lion, they find out. that He's the, the lion king of Narnia and they're, they're scared. Like, I, he, he's, I know he's the king and all, but... but He's a lion, and they ask the other Narnians, is he safe? And the other Narnians, I love their response, they're like, no. No, he is not safe. But he is good, and he is king. Listen, friends, you don't need a God who's safe. A safe idol will never save you. It has no power to do so. But a good king can and will. So Paul says, listen, these aren't real gods. And God is done with this time of ignorance, this time of false worship. And he commands all people to repent. Turn from your false idols and worship the true God instead. And if you don't, Paul says, judgment is coming. A day of judgment is coming. He says it's a fixed day. It's already on the calendar. It's already set. Do you understand that your life is finite? that your time is limited, there is a day set where you will stand before God and give an account. It's already settled. And on that fixed day, God will judge the entire world, God says, or Paul says. He says that his judgment is complete. No one escapes it. No one sidesteps it. There is no pass. There is no get-out-of-jail-free card. Everyone goes through judgment, the whole world. And the judgment will be done in righteousness. Because God is perfect and holy. 
And the judge that he has set over that day is Jesus Christ. Because he is perfect, and he is holy, and he is the just judge of all things. But thankfully, Jesus isn't just a just judge. He's also a gracious Savior. This is the whole concept of the gospel. That God, because he is holy and perfect and he is a just judge, because he demands justice for wrong and sin, we then deserve wrath and punishment and hell because we have sinned, we have rebelled, we have done wrong, and justice demands that our sins be paid for. And God, knowing that his justice had to stand, sent his son Jesus to come to be born as a human, to again, to live a perfect, sinless life, to be holy and perfect and just, and then to go to the cross and to die for sin. Not his sin, for our sin. He went as a substitute. He stood in our place. He paid the price for our sin. He took the justice that we deserved upon himself. And he went to the grave. Three days later, he rose back to life. This is what Paul is declaring, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that shows that he is God, that he is king, that he did conquer sin and death, that he paid the price, justice has been settled, and now he offers you grace and forgiveness if you'll believe in him. Paul says this is the given assurance that he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus can save us from death. He already did it once. He saved himself. He can save us too. He controls all life and death. He alone can save your soul in eternity. And if you fail to believe in Jesus, you are enslaving yourself to an eternity of wrath and punishment in hell. But believing in Jesus saves us for heaven. Paul tells them this, and we see two responses. It says that some of them mocked him. Resurrection? What are you talking about, Paul? You're crazy. This is ridiculous. I'm out of here. And they mocked Jesus. They mocked salvation. But others, some, they said, believed. They said, yeah, I need a God like that. So which one are you going to do? Are you going to mock And keep running after worthless idols that will never sustain you? Are you going to put your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ? Right here, right now, repent, believe, and be saved from hell. Listen, no idol has the power to save your soul. But Jesus does and will if you believe. No idol can save you. No, I can save your soul, but Jesus can and he will and he does if you will just believe in him. You know, ultimately, we turn to idols not because we believe they're going to save us. I don't think anybody really believes that. We turn to idols because they feed us. Because they feed our pride. They feed our need for power. They feed our need for self-sufficiency. They make us feel good about ourselves right here, right now. But they have no power to save us beyond this life. They cannot save your soul. Only Jesus can do that. Because idols enslave me, but Jesus saves me. Right now, if you've never trusted in Christ, I'm getting ready to pray. 
I want you right there in your house, right there in your car, wherever you're at listening to this, to bow your head, pray, and repent of your sin, and trust in Jesus Christ today. Let him save you. Worship the true God today. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for being a good and powerful and just and loving King. Lord, you love us and you desire to save us. So right now, Lord, reveal our hearts to us. Lord, show us our idols. Show us the things that we are giving your worship to, the things that we're giving your glory to. Lord, draw those out in our hearts and our minds that we might cast them aside and show us that we need to be worshiping you instead. Call us to repentance. Call us to faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray for the person right now that's in their home, that's watching this, that's, that's asking themselves, man, can I do this? Can I really believe in Jesus? Can I really be saved? Yes, you can. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would convict them right now and draw them to yourself. Holy Spirit, change their hearts today for the glory of God. Thank you for changing our hearts. Thank you for making us your people. Thank you for your grace in our lives. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. If you prayed and you trusted in Christ just now, I want you to text the number at the bottom of the screen. Let us know. Let us pray for you. Let us come alongside you. And let's worship together right now.